a letter from Paul to the Colossians. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Coloss, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. Please be seated. Thank you, Malcolm. Um, I, I'm, I was pretty nervous being in front of everybody about half an hour ago, so uh, I maybe should have taken some notes to share my ministry uh, team because I neglected to mention two people that are also part of our senior youth team, and that's Jeff Lang. I'm not sure if I saw him yet here, but also I'd like to eat lunch today, and my wife is part of the junior team. Uh, so... Uh, Debbie, thank you for being a youth leader this year. Okay, so uh, for, for this series in Colossians, I'll be using the New American Standard Bible, but any translation you have should be pretty close, so there should be no problems there. And uh, this morning, I want to share a little bit about what things are going to look like this year at Thornhill Baptist Church. At TBC, we want to emphasize what the completeness of the gospel looks like in your life. The various ministry leaders that God has put in place this year have decided that the direction that we want to go is in the path of growing deeper in our relationships with each other. We want this Thornhill Baptist Church community to shine as we seek to follow Jesus together. And so underneath this broad umbrella that we call the gospel, we're going to be seeking opportunities to foster deeper, more personal relationships. And now, I understand that it's not probable that we can all be best friends with each other, but certainly we can with a few, right? So when the opportunity does knock for you to share yourself with somebody, look, look to your left, look to your right, you know, take that opportunity to share with, with one another. And when we share our brokenness together, uh, we become closer to one another. We begin not to just believe in the gospel, but we begin to participate in it. So this gospel community that we're trying to foster intentionally is one that's centered on Jesus Christ. And like I said, there, there may be times when this sharing is so real and so authentic, even to the point of being uncomfortable, but that's okay, because that's how we get deeper. And so to lead by example of how we can deepen our relationships with each other this morning, I would like to take the opportunity to be vulnerable and authentic and share a little bit about a few stories or a few scenarios that have happened to me in my past. And my stories are just like anybody else. They're all of people in need of God. So first story. A young couple has been trying to have a baby for years. They've taken fertility treatment to the fullest extent of man's wisdom, even to one point being told by the doctors that they had conceived. And in response to this miracle news, they turned down a great job opportunity. That would have been the start of many wonderful adventures in a new church, in a new city, in a new home. And shockingly, in the days ahead, they got a phone call. You know that phone call that we all dread, that phone call that changes everything. I'm sorry but the embryo didn't make it. You're not pregnant. And this young couple is devastated, and they're heartbroken. And, you know, all around them, they see, they see dysfunctional people having two, three, four children, and these children are neglected, and they're abused. And, you know, 
even in their immediate circle, the same week that this young couple finds out that they're not pregnant, uh, a couple has an abortion. And, uh, and they look to God in, in frustration and anger, and they ask, why? Why not us? We would raise children to follow you and to glorify you, and yet nothing. And in their discouragement, they call up their pastor, and their pastor listens, and they say, look, pastor, this is what's been going on. And the pastor empathizes with them. And the only words that seem to come to mind are, I'm sorry it's happened, and I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to keep praying for you, but try to remember that Jesus is all you need. Story number two. A young adult son from a divorced family and a difficult childhood gets a phone call from the most loyal, caring person in his life, his best friend, his mom. And on this day while at work, his mama bear calls and she says, are you sitting down? And he says, no, I'm driving. She says, well, you better pull over. I have some news for you. And he does. And this parent, this mother, proceeds to tell her child, her son, that she has a deadly disease and it's not curable. And she's going to die without a miracle. And flashes of seeing his mom go through a frustrating, painful, agonizing decline flashes across this young man's face. And all he can think of is this. Is Jesus enough to get me through this one? Is he enough to get our family through it? Is Jesus really all we need? Story number three. When this young person graduated high school, he became addicted to drugs and alcohol and sex. And now as a young man, has just about destroyed his life. He's lost his job, he's lost his friends, and his family can't stand watching him kill himself with his addictions anymore. And so rather than enable him, they shut the door on him to help him. He's been in recovery or sorry, he's lost his job, lost his friends, been in recovery for several months, and he's sure he's had enough. Now, he's been in this group, and the facilitator has been asking each of the participants of the group, how do you feel? Do you feel better equipped to handle temptation? And one by one, they begin to speak, and the first person says, you know what? I made it this far. I think I can keep going. And the next one speaks up and says, you know, addiction is battle of the mind, and my mind is stronger than it's ever been. And a third one speaks up and says, it's been two years for me, and I think I'm free, and I can go all the way. And this young man listens to the others respond, but he can't help but feel a little bit discouraged because he doesn't feel better equipped to handle temptation. In fact, the temptation is stronger than it's ever been. So he just honestly shares this in the meeting, and it gets silent in the room for a moment. And the facilitator says, I understand what you're saying, but try to keep your focus on your higher power. Your body is telling you you can't live without the alcohol and the drugs, but I'm telling you this, that Jesus is all you need. Jesus is all you need. Jesus is all that we need. We want to believe that statement. We want to know that when our hopes have been squashed and the problems are piling up and sin seems to be having more victory than you or I want in our life, we want to know that Jesus is enough. But there's that lingering question that begins to come up from the inside. Is he enough to heal a broken heart? Is he enough to keep a roof over our head and food on the table? Is he enough to protect our kids when we're not around? Is he enough to overcome that sin that seems to crush me left and right on a regular basis? Is he that good? Well, listen up. Because the book of Colossians, this short letter in the New Testament, declares some very heavy biblical truth when the Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ is enough. 
And as we're going to see over the next several weeks, that the letter to the Colossians is the most Christ-centered, most Jesus-focused book in the entire Bible. It's all about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. Amen? Amen. So here's what we're going to see. I'm going to give you the theme, the big idea, right at the front. And the Apostle Paul is going to tell you that Jesus is all you need. He is enough. And he's not a great addition to your life. He is your life. Now, there's a pastor in Vegas. His name is Paul Godhart. And his series outline I followed this summer. And I'm following most of uh, the meat of this teaching comes from his series in Colossians. And he puts it like this. The Apostle Paul is going to go as far as to say, If Jesus Christ is not all you need, now listen closely, he is not what you need. That's how strong the wording is in the book of Colossians. So today we're going to answer these questions. Who wrote it? Who was it written to? What was the purpose? What was the setting? And how does it fit in the whole of scripture? As well as, how does it impact our lives today? And I'm going to share one thing at the beginning of each sermon that I think is going to be valuable for all of us. And for some of you, you're going to hear these uh, again, and it's good to remember them. And others, it might be the first time. Uh, I want to get in a little teaching on how to interpret the Bible correctly. So at the start of each sermon, I'll start off with a Bible interpretation principle. And, uh, and this morning, uh, the basics of the Bible study part, Bible study part, uh, will go is from general to specific. But first, let me pray before we get into the heart of the sermon. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son Jesus, and I thank you that your word is alive and active. We have the scripture, we have the Holy Spirit, and I just pray that we know that you're with us every step of the way, and that you would unpack today's message to each of us so that we know where we need to make changes and where we need to get right with you as we leave here in the next half hour or so. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, whenever you study the Bible, just remember you study the Bible just the way you study any other subject. You always go from general to specific. Any other thing, you always go from the broad to the narrow, general to specific. And here's what you're going to find. It's the same thing when you study the Bible. Because by understanding the general pieces of Scripture first, then you can start to dig in to those fine gold nuggets of truth in specific chapters and verses that you read along the way. Now, some of you might say to me, well, Freddie, what are some of the general aspects of Scripture that I need to know before I engage in Bible study? Well, here's the first one. Number one, the Bible is God's Word. Throughout the Bible, there's hundreds of references that the Bible is God's words. And if you're reading King James Version, you hear this a lot. Thus saith the Lord, or the Lord said, or the word of the Lord came to them saying... The Bible makes it clear that it is inspired by God, and even the Apostle Peter says in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And now, I'm fully aware that when I say the Bible is God's word, that's a statement of faith. But... When somebody asks me, you know what, Freddie, how do you know that the Bible is 100% sure the Word of God? You know what I say? I don't know. I don't know for sure that it's 100% God's Word. But the evidence leads me to believe that there's something special about this text. It's so unique that there's no room for human manipulation or chance. And here's what I mean. 
The Bible was written over a 1,500-year span of time, spanning more than four generations, more than 40 human writers from every walk of life, including kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, doctors, scholars. It was written on three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. The two sections, there's two sections that include 66 books divided by a 400-year span of time. And from here, from, from the beginning to the end, there is one message, one story that's woven through every part of the Bible that begins before creation and ends in eternity. There is one goal, and that is the glory of the Father through redemption of creation. And it begins in the first book called Genesis and ends in the last book called Revelation. The Bible is the most read and most published book of any book in the history of the world. It has transcended racial boundaries, geographic, ideological, economic boundaries, and it has been revered as God's word in part for more than 5,000 years. It has changed communities. It has rocked nations. It is the most historically reliable document of antiquity. Now, when I say antiquity, I know some of you might not know what that means, but I'm talking about all the books of ancient past. The Bible is the most reliable, and here's why. And Pastor Ken, last year, I believe, did a class called Bible 101, and he, he showed us some of this in the first class. Uh, and this just blows my mind. When it comes to historical reliability, books from antiquity are evaluated on four things. When was the book written? When was the first copy found? How many years span between those two dates? And the number of copies that have survived to this day. For example, the writings of Caesar were written between 100 to 44 B.C. The earliest copy was found around A.D. 900, suggesting a thousand-year span from the time it was written to the first copy was found. And there's only ten copies known to exist. Now, the closest book that is to the New Testament is Homer's Iliad. It was written around 900 B.C., and the earliest copies date to about 400 B.C., suggesting a 500-year span of time. And there's 643 copies that remain to this day. But get this. The New Testament was written around A.D. to 100 around 40 A.D. to 100, and the earliest copy dates to 125 A.D., suggesting a 25-year span of time between the two. And there are over 24,000 copies that are known to exist today. In other words, the Bible is the most historical, reliable book of antiquity. And you put all those things together, and some people might say, well, that's all fascinating, Freddie, but it still doesn't prove that the Bible is God's word. And again, I would say you're right, but the uniqueness of the Bible itself suggests that it's more than human manipulation or chance could come up with. So we start at Thornhill Baptist Church with the Bible is God's word. That is the first step that you need to know in understanding how to interpret the Bible correctly. And the next three points follow really quickly. The Bible is true. Once again, I know that that's a statement that's based on faith. But trust me, I was a redneck skeptic myself, and there's something amazing about this book. It comes alive. It speaks to you. The words are active, and, and it never ends. It just keeps going. And even Jesus himself says in John 17, 17, your word is truth. Now, number two, or number three of the general parts, the Bible is God's revelation of himself to humanity. That statement alone answers the question why the Bible exists. It exists because God has chosen to reveal himself. 
The Bible contains the heart of God, the mind of God. It contains his activity, his nature, his love. It helps us to understand our place in creation, and it answers the deep questions that people have, like, why am I here? What is my purpose in life? Where are we going, and is there life after death? All these different types of questions, the Bible answers authoritatively. So when we read the Bible, we got to understand from the beginning, number one, the Bible is God's word. Number two, the Bible is true. Number three, the Bible is God's revelation of himself. And number four, the Bible gives guidance for our lives. So much of our life is spent seeking guidance. You know, what, what is the right choice? How do I train my kids? How do I build a stronger marriage and a dis- live a dis- disciplined life? How do I have an even temper or wisdom in the moment or joy in the midst of trials? There are so many parts of our life that we're constantly in search of guidance for, and the Bible contains God's insight, his perspective on these great questions that we ask. So, not only, so when we read the Bible, we understand not only is it God's word, Not only is it true, not only is it his revelation of himself to us, but also so we can have guidance in the areas that we need to hear from God on a daily basis. And when you put that all together, it helps us to be better prepared to dig into the letter to the Colossians. Because now we know what the Bible is, we know it's true, we know why it was written, and we also know how it impacts each of our lives. All four of those principles are crucial to us understanding this letter to the Colossians. Because Colossians is just one of 66 books in the Bible. And now, we just learned about the Word of God, and everything we learned is going to be the foundation that we build everything on for the next several weeks. Now, even though Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, Paul was not the author. Who was the author? God, that's right. There's only one author, and the author of the book of Colossians is the Holy Spirit of God. So when you read these words, you're not just reading the words of a man You're reading the writings of something that's been coming through the Holy Spirit, through the person of the Apostle Paul. And then the insights that we discover, they're not speculation or or hypothesis or possibility. It's truth. God's not trying to give us a secret Bible code so we can figure out how he works. He's writing to reveal his heart and his mind and his desire for his people. And finally, Colossians gives us very practical aspects of everyday living. So now that we understand the general parts of the Bible, we can begin to see how that fits directly into the letter to the Colossians. And now we can begin to dig into Colossians as a whole. Now here are some interesting things you may not have known about the letter to the Colossians. Colossians is part of a box set. Now just like Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia or Rocky, it's part of a box set. It's best understood in connection with three other letters that came out at the same time. Around A.D. 62, four letters were written by Paul and left Rome, and one was to the church in Ephesus, one to the church in Philippi, and two to the church in Colossae. One was to the congregation, and one was to a member of the congregation named Philemon. And these four letters have been referred to as the anatomy of Christianity because they all fit together. And now, this is what that means. Ephesians focuses on the body, uh, the body of Christ, where Jesus is the head. Colossians focuses on Jesus, who is the head of the body. And Philippians shows the body living as Jesus' servants on earth. And Philemon shows Jesus making us fit to serve others. And all four go hand in hand. Now, when you understand what's going on and how they were presented as a group, you have a better understanding when you get into the letter. It's like 
when Debbie and I were dating and we, we went on a movie night and we went to The Return of the King, Lord of the Rings, and afterwards I find out that Debbie skipped part two. She missed the two towers. And of course me, I'm shocked. What do you mean you skipped the two towers? And she says she just wanted to hang out with me. I can under... I'm a, I'm a pretty funny guy. Um, but the point is that her viewing experience would have been enhanced that much more, and her sense of understanding of the journey of all the Lord of the Rings characters would have been that much more enhanced and complete if she didn't leave out the two towers, the middle part of the box set. Well, the same is to be said for this box set of the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. The anatomy of Christianity, when understood together as a package, will give all of us a fuller and deeper understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So now that you see where Colossians fits into Scripture, let's go to the first two verses, and that's where we'll finish up the rest of the morning. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren who are in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now the first two verses give us who wrote it, who, who wrote it, and who it was written to. You find out that it was written by the Apostle Paul, either through dictating it to Timothy or while Timothy was with him. It wasn't uncommon for Paul to talk out a letter while one of his students wrote it out. And Paul was Timothy's mentor, so that's Paul probably dialogued it while Timothy wrote it down. But here's something that I want you to notice. It's how Paul became an apostle. He was not an apostle because he signed up for the position. He, was an, he wasn't an apostle because he declared himself to be an apostle. He says that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He's not there because he chose it. He's there because God placed him there. And so because it was God who placed him there, this is now what God is writing to them, through him. He is saying to the saints and the faithful brethren who are in Christ who are at Colossae. So let me ask you a question. Was this letter written to non-Christians? No. So when you get into this letter, you can't take passages out and say that this applies to your life if that person's not a believer, because this is written to believers. Here's the next question. Was this letter written to the church in Rome? No. And it's not that some of the parts can't be applied to the church in Rome, but when Paul writes a letter, he's responding to specific needs in each of the different congregations. And when we get into this, he's going to talk about the needs that are taking place in Colossae, not Rome. And when you see the needs there, you will say, oh yeah, that applies to me here, and this applies to me there, and that's fine. But until you first see it in its proper context, you can't jump the interpretational ladder over to the other side. Let's keep going. To the saints and faithful brethren, when it talks about saints and the faithful, we're not talking about two different people groups. All he's doing is furthering the explanation of the first. Saints refers to those who are separated from sin and set apart to God, and the word faithful shows how that separation occurred. It was by believing faith. To the faithful saints who are in Christ at Colossae, they are in Christ and they're at Colossae. So here's what you got to get. It's not where you are from, it's who you're in. It's like the bumper sticker I have on the back of my Ford Escort that says, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And there's a picture of Jesus beside it. So whenever my wife catches me speeding, I just say, honey, it's okay, I'm evangelizing. <laughs> they they got to see my sticker, okay? But the point is, are you in Christ? 
You see, I'm from Lac-La-Biche, Alberta, but I'm in Christ. The Dadas, Idokos, you're from Nigeria, but you're in Christ. Ron and Christy, the Whitfords, are from Edmonton, and we forgive them, but they are in Christ. And my wife, Debbie, she's from Calgary. She's at Calgary, but she's in Christ, just like many of you are. You see, the issue here is that one day you will stand before God, and he's not going to say, where did you come from? What church did you attend? And tell me, did you grow up on a farm, or did you grow up in the city or in the suburbs? What church did you attend? No. His question's going to be, are you in my son? Are you in Jesus? That's the big question we're dealing with here today. So I ask you again, are you in Jesus? Because if you're not, then after we close the service today, you come and talk to me. And today you can do a 180 and start following Jesus Christ, the Lord and King. And finally, the statement that comes at the end of this letter, we can't miss that. And Paul, Paul does this in a lot of his letters. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul is letting us know about the source and the authorship of this writing. Because it would be one thing if Paul said, may God bless you with grace and peace. You see, because if he did it like that, it would be coming from him. May God bless you. But the scripture doesn't say that. What the scripture says is grace and peace from God our Father. In other words, he's saying, I've been alone with the Father. And he's got a message for you. He wants me to share with you grace and peace. He lets them know right up front that this isn't his writing. This is from God the Father. And he's got something for the saints and the faithful brothers and sisters in Colossae. Grace and peace. So at this point, you know who wrote the book. You know the audience that received it. You also know that God is the one who's writing through Paul. Now, what is the setting and the purpose behind this letter? Well, first, we've got to quickly look at the date and the place of the writing. And now, a lot of it depends on where Paul was in prison when he wrote the letter to the Colossians. And if you don't know very much about the Apostle Paul, well, let me tell you, he was a real thug for Jesus Christ. I said it. He was a real thug for Jesus Christ. He was in and out of prison all through his time in the ministry. And I'm just going to give you the answer straight up. Paul wrote this letter around A.D. 60 from the prison in Rome because when you put together all the epistles and all the information in there, it leads us to believe Paul is in Rome writing at A.D. 60. But why was it written? To answer that question, we've got to look around what's going on around the church of Colossae at the time. Now, we find out in chapter 1, verse 5 and 7, that Epaphras is a ministry leader in the church, and, and the church is going through some trouble because there's a serious heresy that's beginning to infiltrate the church and become popular in the area. This false teaching was creeping into the church that wasn't the true gospel that Jesus revealed. This teaching was from outside groups, and it started mingling inside the body of believers, and he was concerned about the integrity of the believers in his church. So he took a 1,300-mile road trip in order to go to Rome and visit Paul and to get some advice on the situation. But we find at this point that the false teaching hadn't fully crept into the church. So at this point, the Colossians letter is a preventative letter on the behalf of the Apostle Paul. But here's the danger that's going on around the city. The church was made up of, of a mixed group of people. You have Gentiles, a lot of Greeks, and you have the Jewish people. And each of these different groups have brought in from their former life um, new things into the church. Now, these false teachers were trying to mix 
Christian doctrine or Christian beliefs with a mixture of Greek philosophy and Jewish legalism. And the result was a departure from Christ-centered living and a return to human-based religion. And whenever we find Greek philosophy coming in, it added to the Christian doctrine by attacking the nature and the sufficiency of Jesus. And there were some people who were just rejecting the divinity of Jesus. And here's why. From the Greek philosophy background, it led them to believe that they believed that God was good and that all matter was evil. And now, if God was good and all matter was evil, God would never become a man because that would make God evil. So Jesus cannot be God, and here's what Paul says to that in chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, in Jesus, all, all the deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, Jesus was fully God. But there were others in the community that rejected Jesus' humanity. You know, because it's kind of funny. You couldn't please anybody in the crowd. Some say he wasn't fully God. Some say he's not fully human. But they rejected his humanity because they did believe that he was God. They didn't believe that he was fully human because if matter is evil, then Jesus couldn't be human. But he was more like an angelic spirit that was sent from God. But Paul addresses this group too. And he says in chapter 1, verse 22, For it was the Father's good will, good pleasure, for the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. And the reason it's fleshly body is, is opposed to just body is because Paul is addressing this point of misunderstanding. He wants them to know that this isn't just a body. It's flesh and blood. It's just like your body. It's just like my body. And it almost seems like overkill if you don't understand what Paul is battling with with his words. So in other words, Paul is saying Jesus is fully human. So you have that group. You have another group. Now there's also another group that believe Christ wasn't enough for salvation. They didn't believe that Jesus was enough. And the reason is that Greeks love knowledge. They took pride in making their ideas seem complicated. Deep philosophy is what they're all about. And so to them, it was unbelievable that the gospel was true because it was too simple. Anybody could understand it. They figured it wasn't deep enough. So they had to claim that they had a deeper secret revelation from God. So that it wasn't just Jesus, it was Jesus plus this secret revelation that allowed a person to be saved. And here, and Paul just basically says, Jesus is enough. He's all you need. So you understand the Greek Gentile side of the heresy creeping in. Now there's the Jewish legalism side that's creaking in, creeping in. And these Jewish religious folk believe that circumcision was necessary to be saved. And by doing that, they fall into the same trap that the Greek Gentiles did. Because the Greeks were adding knowledge to salvation, knowledge to Jesus for salvation. These guys are adding circumcision to Jesus for salvation. And either way you go, the moment that you add anything to Jesus for salvation, it's no longer the gospel. It's a new gospel. It's a different gospel. And Paul addresses it in Colossians 3.11. He says, there's no distinction between Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, but... Christ is all and in all. In other words, Jesus is all you need. It's not circumcision plus Jesus. It's Jesus. And now here's one more group I got to mention before we move on, and that this group considered self-denial to be the main path of spiritual growth. 
And from their point of view, the person grows spiritually by avoiding or denying themselves of certain things. What does Paul do? Chapter 2, verse 20. If you've died with Christ and the elementary principles of the world, why is it, as though you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to its decrees, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? These teachings have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. See, these religious people, these Jewish legalists, they're, they're, they're just set in their ways. They're set in keeping the dietary laws and remembering the holy days, and Paul just reminds them too. He says ceremonialism and being religious doesn't make you right with God or keep you right with God. Verses 2, 16, he says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These things are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance is Christ. Did we catch that? Again, Jesus is all you need. Every single time Paul deals with an issue, he leads them back to Jesus. And his theology and his answer is simple. Jesus Christ is all you need. He is enough. He's enough to save you. He's enough to grow you spiritually. He's enough to keep you on, keeping on. He's enough to get you through this. He's all you need for spiritual formation. Jesus is enough. He's all you need. Now, when you understand that these types of threats from the Greeks and the Jews that were coming in against the church of Colossae, it's easier now to see why this letter is considered the most Christ-centered, most Jesus-focused book in the entire Bible. And finally, how does it apply to you and me in our setting today? Well, let me ask you this question. Are people still adding things to Jesus for salvation? Yeah, you better believe it. Some people add baptism or church attendance, and they really actually believe that if they've been baptized and they go to church regularly, they're going to heaven. Some people believe that you've got to keep this law, or you've got to remember all the Christian holidays. You've got to be here at Easter and Christmas. Keep the commandments. You've got to do this religious thing. You've got to jump through this religious hoop. And we're still facing the same problems today. Are people still, st- still doubting that Jesus is God? Yes. In fact, it's not just outsiders or non-believers that are questioning Christ's deity, but also some, quest- some Christians are questioning the divinity of Jesus. There's, there's a website called Barna... Barna Group, Barna.org, and you look at some of the statistics inside the church of what Christians believe, and it'll blow your mind. The point is that if some Christians in the church don't believe that Jesus is God, then how are we ever going to show others outside the church that Jesus is God? It's the same problems today. Do some people think that keeping the law will make them right with God? That's probably the biggest one in our culture today. Even if somebody's not a Christian or they don't go to church, but they're a morally good person. And you ask them, if you were to go to heaven one day and God were to say to you, why should I let you in? What would you say? Now, most of the time, people will say, I've been a good person. I've tried to follow the Ten Commandments. I've tried to do good and help others and take care of the poor. And and they're simply saying that I think following the law is good enough to make me right with God. Here's one more. Do some people still think that not touching and not tasting and not doing makes them more mature Christians? Absolutely. Religion and and religious rules and legalism is alive more today than ever. And do some people still doubt that Jesus is enough? Sadly, yes. You see, 
This book, this letter to the Colossians, is just as applicable today as it was when it was written. The city changes, the people change, some of the circumstances change, but the human condition remains, and the problems of the human heart stay the same. And Paul's point is simple. Jesus Christ is all you need. He is enough. Now, in closing, I have a question for you. As we just get into this new study in the letter to the Colossians, what are you waiting on to make you complete? In a moment, I'm going to call up the music team, and, uh, and we're, going to, we're going to sing to close today's message. But I want to just get our hearts in the right spot before we do that. In what areas are you saying, if I just had fill in the blank, my life would be set? If I just had more money, if I just had a better job or a nicer house or a fancier car or fancier clothes, if I had a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, if I had another child or any children at all, if I had a better self-image or fewer problems, or if I had this sickness healed up, if I had a more supportive family, whatever it is, if I just had you fill in the blank, my life would be fulfilled. If you've ever filled in that blank with anything other than Jesus, then this series is for you. This book is for you because Jesus is enough. I'm going to call up uh, Brian and uh, the rest of the quartet, and we're going to sing today. But I'm going to ask you to do something with me for a moment, brothers and sisters. Why don't we just close our eyes for a moment and let's still our hearts before we sing. Think about this statement. If I just had blank, I would be complete. If I just had this one thing, my life would be set. Think about it. What is filling in the blank for you this morning? For some of you, it popped in right away because you've been dealing with this for a while. Now think about that thing that's filling in the blank. What is it? What is it that you need to lay down? Because as we journey through the book of Colossians, I want you to be praying about this. And I mean every morning before you rise, you lay it before the Lord. And every evening before you go to bed, you lay it before God. And here's what I think is going to happen. As you lay these things down, Jesus is going to fill you up. As you seek to find fulfillment in Christ, these things are going to disappear. And you're going to find that it's in Christ alone that you are made complete. Because Jesus is enough.